are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Monica Miller. She is an assistant professor of English at Middle Georgia State University in Macon. Her research examines the intersections between gender and region in American literature. She's the president of the Flannery O'Connor Society and serves on the editorial advisory board for the Flannery O'Connor Review. Her book, Being Ugly, Southern Women Writers and Social Rebellion from LSU Press, explores the ways that Southern women writers such as Margaret Mitchell and Monique Truong employ ugly characters to upend the expectations of patriarchy and open up more possibilities for Southern female identity. Today, we will speak with Dr. Miller about teaching Lillian Smith and her continued importance today. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Miller. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure having you because I know that you've been very much involved in the reading groups that we've had here, which we'll talk about in a minute. Unfortunately, we didn't do one this semester, which is partly my fault, but hopefully we'll get those started back up in the fall. But let's start off because your research and your teaching focuses on Southern women writers. And as your website says, the intersections of gender and region. And can you talk some about how you came across Lillian Smith or who introduced you to her, where you learned about her? And more specifically, where you see her within these discussions of Southern literature Southern women's literature, or even American literature? Sure. Well, I came to um, Southern women writers were just generally who I read for pleasure. I finished my bachelor's degree um, as, an, as an adult learner. I, I took some time off in college and came back and was really pleased to discover in college that Southern literature was a class. So in undergraduate, taking Southern literature with Tom Haddix at the University of Tennessee, I was really excited to have a classroom setting in which to talk about all these books that I liked anyway. And then um, when I got my master's at the University of Tennessee, Professor Haddix also taught a class, um, a graduate level class, and that's where I first um, read Lillian Smith was we read Killers of the Dream in that graduate level Southern literature class. And one of the things that I really value about Lillian Smith and why I think it's really important that people be reading her, especially right now, is that as a um, white woman in the South in her time period, um, I think she really um, contradicts a lot of what we think of in terms of the traditional South, the white South, the victimized Southern white woman, the white woman who has been used as an excuse for so much racist, racist and race-based violence in the South, that she really provides, um, as we were talking about, a, a really counter to the traditional narratives of the South. And it's one that I think we should, we should really continue to look at and study and let people know that there certainly, is, there certainly has never been a monolithic South. There certainly is not a monolithic South now. And the more that we learn about people like Lillian Smith, the more that we can um, really understand what a much more complicated region we have. Yeah, I think your point about there's not being a monolithic South, there's not a monolithic anything, as we know. And I always think about the ways that the South gets, best way for me to say it right now, is dumped on with the nation's sins, dealing with racism and everything like that. And I try to make a, a point to tell my students that 
the South is not the only place that these issues existed. Um, we know that they're not the only place where these issues exist today. But I was going to ask you too, you mentioned that that aspect of her challenging and contradicting kind of the narratives of the South. And she, of course, in Killers of the Dream points out the sex sin segregation kind of triptych, those three things working together, you know, and that really intersects with with your work on gender and region, you know, how do you how do you kind of see those things at work? Or maybe another question may be, you know, how yeah, how do you see those things at work? I guess I guess I would say. I guess that's a question. Sex sin and what was the third part? Sex, sin, and segregation. So, you know, she's really pulling of course on the Puritan ideals of sexual repression or, you know, not talking about sex for one, um, which goes into the sin kind of the repression of sex and then segregation to maintain these systems, right? Well, I think that both, you know, what one of the things that I find so fascinating about her is that both her life and her work speak to this entire triptych, that, you know, that the kind of life that she lived being in segregated groups, having, or being in integrated groups, um, having, you know, real friendships and, and professional working relationships with a variety um, of people in, in racially integrated groups, I think, you know, is quite noteworthy and something that um, it's one of those things that I think we, that, that does kind of run counter to. I mean, certainly things like um, the Highlander Center and things like that are just not things that I know when I go to teach my students in the South, they just, you know, even when I was in Tennessee, not that many undergraduate students had heard of the Highlander Center or knew how important it was. And so, I'm fascinated by both how her work and her life kind of was all a testimony to um, this triptych that you describe. Well, that, that leads me to this question, because you mentioned that you came back to your schooling as an adult learner, so as a non-traditional student, and you actually take part at Case Western University in the Lauren Alvin Siegel Lifelong Learning Programs, where you're, where you're teaching courses to basically adult learners who are coming back just to, just to learn. I've done a couple of those courses at another university. In reading the course description, because you actually did a course on Lillian Smith last February, um, Lillian Smith's Vision of Justice, and the course description says, this remarkable woman whose legacy of social justice has been too often overlooked is what you're studying. And this is something I've thought about, something you would just mention, of course, the Highlander Center and students not knowing about, about the Highlander Center. So can you talk about, you know, why you think Smith has been overlooked or why even the Highlander Center, why these, why these narratives or these places have been overlooked in our collective consciousness, I guess I would say. I think this speaks to, again, there's this kind of uh, master narrative that the Jim Crow South existed. Part of it may be that stories can only handle a couple of main characters, you know, and that you know, so we have Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and the two of them together made the civil rights movement happened. Stu white students came down from the North and helped for the voting rights crusade. Um, and eventually, as some of my students like to say, and now we don't have any racism, yeah. right? Um, but we understand that that it actually was a lot more people than that, you know, and, and even the way that we tell, say, the story of Rosa Parks tells the story of the story is typically of a passive old black lady who was just tired, kind of erasing her actual work and her actual agency in the, the famous story. Um, and so Lillian Smith, as a rather middle class, conventionally attractive white woman, unmarried white woman 
um, in the South, there isn't really a place in that traditional narrative for that kind of character. Um, and I think that I think that, that one of the jobs of people in Southern studies, one of the jobs of um, scholars today, scholars and teachers both, is to get better at writing the story and publicizing other stories. All right, you talk about us only having the capacity for a couple of characters, and I'm thinking about Rosa Parks. And one, the fact that she wasn't the first woman to do, to do that. Right. She did it before as well. That wasn't the first time she did it. But also, and this is from Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, which I just taught in the LES Studies class. But this is what uh, Michelle Alexander writes. I'll just read it real quick. So Rosa Parks was not the first person to refuse to give up her seat on a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama. And there was also a woman from Georgia who came. And I don't remember if she was part of it too, or if um, she was after Rosa Parks. But she, she's going to talk about two Alabama women. Civil rights advocates considered and rejected two other black women as plaintiffs when planning a test case challenging segregation practices, Claudette Colvin and Mary Louise Smith. Both of them were arrested for refusing to give up their seats in Montgomery segregated buses just months before Rosa Parks refused to budge. Colvin was 15 years old when she defied segregation laws. Her case attracted national attention, but civil rights advocates declined to use her as a plaintiff because she got pregnant by an older man shortly after her arrest. Advocates worried that her, quote, immoral conduct would detract from or undermine their efforts to show that Blacks were entitled and worthy of equal treatment. Likewise, they decided not to use Mary Louise Smith as, as a plaintiff because her father was rumored to be an alcoholic. So discussion, of course, respectability, politics, and stuff like that. But I never heard of Colvin or Smith until recently, right? Mm -hmm. so those narratives, I hadn't heard of the Durs until I, until I watched um, Andrew Beck Grace's documentary, right? Right, right. Their connection with even Lil, even learning right. about Lillian. I mean, there's, there's, and well, and their connection to um, Eleanor Roosevelt. Right. Um, I think that there's a, there's a lot of stories to be publicly told about kind of that network of women, that network of white women that just really, again, it doesn't fit the narrative of in the, if we're talking about say the 1930s and we think of Southern women, we think of Margaret Mitchell. You know, right. I think that there's a whole bunch of work that still needs to be done to counter the the figure of Margaret Mitchell that continues to loom. I had to laugh because I keep thinking about Lillian and Paula's um, conversations with Mitchell and then they're kind of really panning of Gone with the Wind. Right. It's like, a, it's, like, it's like a cotton ball flop. And they were doing that journal in the mid 30s. I would say, I would say directly as a response to Mitchell partly. I mean, and that lost cause narrative. I mean, it started as a literary journal, but the people who read that journal, um, South Today, you know, the final title, and who commented and said that, that this journal is important, that's part of that network too. I found at the camp kind of a list of where they were sending it. They were sending it to like HBCUs. They were sending it, the HBCUs were on the subscription list. They were sending it to HBCUs. They were sending it to the YMCA in New York, all these different places they were connected with through this journal. You know, another now that I now that I'm thinking about it, one of the other kind of dominant narratives that I think also we have a, we can, we're working on, but also has a lot of work to kind of dismantle it, is the um, fugitive poets and then Southern agrarian narrative yeah. of Southern literature too, right? That that Macon wrote Sahara the Beaux and then the people at Vanderbilt wrote I'll Take My Stand, and Faulkner was Faulkner, and ta-da, Southern literature. 
Yeah. And so I think that, that that master narrative also has kind of um, overshadowed really important work like South Today. Well, where do people, I mean, even going back further, where do people like Cable fit in here? Who is right. definitely against, you know, segregation in a lot of his work and talks right. about issues. Yeah, it's a, it's a really kind of important work. And then Faulkner, of course, looms large over all of this. And then Mitchell and then Harper Lee. So we right. have these kind of touchstones. Well, and so, I mean, of, of the good of the good work being done right now, I know there's a, um, there are a couple of new encyclopedias and anthologies on the horizon coming out in Southern Studies. I'm working on one uh, with, uh, with a couple of people for Rutledge. And I know when we sat down to write to put together to compile the um, Rutledge Guide to Literature of the American South, it was a real goal of ours to bring out new narratives and to reach out to um, both kind of the scholars who are very active and central to um, traditional Southern studies, but also to a number of not just only junior scholars, but also people who probably don't consider themselves to be doing Southern studies at all. Yeah. And so I think that that's something that, you know, I'm um, in the as secretary of the Society for the Study of Southern Literature, as we're planning 2022 um, Sizzle Conference, I think that there are definitely people in Southern Studies who are trying to bring out, highlight, canonize even, or, you know, come up with, highlight the other, the other narratives in the South. And so I do think that work's being done. It's just really hard. And trying to counter things like To Kill a Mockingbird is just hard. Yeah. <laughs> I so, mean, it was named the, when PBS and um, uh, the library system did the Great American Read contest a couple of years ago and To Kill a Mockingbird was so overwhelmingly America's favorite novel. And I have, there are points in Mockingbird that I like. I, I'll say that. But o overall, we put way, and I've talked about this with other people too, we put way too much stake in that novel. Mm -hmm. I think what's really kind of interesting to me, I reread it for something a, a little while back. And what's really interesting to me is when I reread it, it came out right before Lillian Smith died. She had a copy. There's a copy in her library. She mentioned in the letter that I haven't read it. So I don't think she ever read it. But what really kind of stands out to me is what I see in that novel is the problems I have with it are one that we put so much stake in it in regards to discussions of race for one, which is a lot more than just that. She gets into the narration and she gets to points where she can have these in-depth discussions like Lillian Smith would have, but then she just drops off. Those are the big issues I have with that novel. But some of the things that I really think are done well that we really need to explore more, and this was just based on my rereading and then reading Smith too, the opening of that novel where she talks about the history of the Finch's land, how they got it. I mean, that, that's a long history of colonization, mm -hmm. of enslavement. They get their land from they get their land from enslavement. That's where they go, you know, and spend their spend their time when, whenever they go out to the country, all that stuff. The other thing that really kind of caught my attention this time too was Boo Radley and how white he is. Mm -hmm. And if I'm thinking about that psychologically in relation to, to Lillian Smith and her work. Boo Radley's the stunted growth that what Scout and Jim could be if they keep questioning. They don't have a place in that society. They're not Miss Maudie who's basically like, hey, this system exists. Your dad's doing something, but I'm just going to live in it and do what I need to do, right? 
He's, you know, Flannery O'Connor said that To Kill a Mockingbird was a was a lovely children's novel. Um, yeah. She was quite dismissive of it. And you know, I taught it. I've written about teaching To Kill a Mockingbird with, um, along with Ghost of a Watchman, and also um, Between the World and Me, because when I had ordered the advanced copies or the you know pre-ordered, I pre-ordered Tanahasi Coast's Between the World and Me, and I uh, pre-ordered Ghost of a Watchman, and they had the same publication date, and both books came in the mail the same day. Oh and seeing those two books together was just fascinating. So I taught a class that was basically, it was a first year introduction to, to, to uh, writing about literature class at Georgia Tech. And it was about reading Harper Lee in the era of Black Lives Matter. And reading, reading To Kill a Mockingbird in the era of Black Lives Matter was really, the end of it was really shocking because every, almost all scholarship and teaching materials takes the ending of that book um, on good faith takes when uh, Tom is, is, is running, when Tom is shot and killed and they claim he was running and trying to escape and they shoot him in the back. Most scholars and teachers just take that at face value whereas in my class and with my students consciously thinking about Black Lives Matter, it seemed obvious, right? It seemed like an absolutely obvious point that he was framed, that that was the excuse. And then reading it, with Ghost Out of Watchmen and something that I think Ghost Out of Watchmen has a lot in common with Lillian Smith's work um, and also with King is Ghost Out of Watchmen is very clear. The problem, one of the problems with To Kill a Mockingbird and so much kind of canonical Southern literature is it's like, they're the bad white people and the good white people. They're the bad racist people. We know them because they're in the KKK and then they're the good white people. And Atticus is one of the good white people. Right. Whereas in Ghost Out of Watchmen, Atticus is a member of a white citizens council. Um, and what I really appreciate about Ghost at a Watchmen is it's like, no, actually it's the well-meaning white people that are the most dangerous ones. Um, and when I taught Lillian Smith to um, the Case Western people, pairing up Lillian Smith with Letter from a Birmingham Jail, many people hadn't read Letter from a Birmingham Jail either. This is something that I teach constantly. My first year writing students, I mean, I think Letter from a Birmingham Jail is is masterful in so many ways. And this common theme of, it's actually the well-meaning white people who are the most dangerous, that, that really um, is really where we need to be focusing our efforts is a common thread that I see in Ghost of the Watchmen and Lillian Smith and in King. And that's, the mess, that's a message that I think continues to resonate. And she talks about that. I'm thinking about one of her pieces in here. I think it's in um, Growing Into Freedom. If I remember correctly, I may be wrong. But she. Well, I taught, um, I paired the right way is not the moderate way with Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Yeah, that, that, but there's, and maybe, maybe just the right way is not the moderate way. But I remember there, there's one essay where she basically says, she starts off and says, these are the bad people. Yet the good people are basically the ones who are doing, you're the ones who are doing just as much and not more damage, which is right. my body. Yeah. And yeah. Her and her missionary group, you know? And I wanted to ask you about that class because you talk about pairing King, pairing King with Smith, which I think we should definitely do because not just their personal connection, but a lot of the things they're saying really overlap. Mm -hmm. And and when you mentioned Letter from Birmingham Jail too, I keep thinking about his I Have a Dream speech that, no, and that people may not listen or read that or even listen or read John Lewis's speech on the March on Washington and their discussions of police brutality. Yet all we want to talk about is I have a dream where everybody's together holding hands at the end. Right? Yeah. 
at but, Stone Mountain. Right. Um, how did that class go? So, so you taught Lillian Smith's Vision of Justice and you taught it to adult learners. And I've talked to you before and you said that most people had not heard of Smith, if, if any of them. And these right. were older learners. How, how did they take Lillian Smith? And these are learners in the Midwest too, so not in the South, right? Right. This is, this is it. Yeah. So it's, it's in Ohio. Um, but, you know, also this, the, it's a very self-selected group, right? These are people who are going to pay for a class. I mean, as a teacher, it's fantastic because everybody does the reading, everybody has things to say, and there's no papers to grade. Um, but they were all, so the first class I taught was actually in Flannery O'Connor. When I first signed up for this, um, I taught um, a class in Flannery O'Connor. And one of the things that comes up about when teaching Flannery O'Connor is people want to excuse racism. People want to excuse things and say, well, it, she was a product of her time. And I think that Lillian Smith is a really important figure to think about when reading people like O'Connor, because you can say, well, she's also from a white lady from Georgia and she saw things very differently. And so when I taught this to um, the Case Western people, they were all just really indignant that they had not heard of her again, because I mean, there were people who were retired attorneys. Um, many, some of the people told really interesting stories about one woman had actually, when she was in elementary school, say in the fifties or sixties, that her family had moved from Ohio to Memphis and what a shock it was moving to Tennessee in the sixties from Ohio. Um, and so their, their first reaction was just being indignant that they, were not aware of who she was. And they were really interested in learning um, more about her. And especially, you know, the, the stories of her with Martin Luther King, who is somebody who was, you know, so revered. Um, but again, the story that, that people see in the North is we had Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks um, and people marched and the end. Right. So the, the first thing was they were really indignant. The second thing is they really, and it was really fun to read with them because there was such an admiration for her writing I mean, she is, her craft is something that I enjoyed being able to um, appreciate with the students was her actual craft. Several students went, because it was a four week session and we used the collection, the Lillian, the, the Lillian Smith collection. So we read excerpts. We read excerpts from Killers of the Dream and we read excerpts from Strange Fruit. Um, but a number of people went and read all of Strange Fruit and they really admired Strange Fruit. Um, so there was a real appreciation for her craft, which is something that I think that maybe we could talk that in general, I think we could talk more about is her actual skill as a writer. Um, the one thing that they, that um, did not go over well, that there was a lot of discussion of was her Freudian framework. 70 year old people have like no use for um, the Freudian framework. And like when we read children talking, that was really boy, people did not like that. They thought it was stilted and, and they got kind of mad because they're like, she does this other stuff so great. Why is she doing this? Oh, you should um, see her bookshelf. It's full of Freud. <laughs> it is full of Freud. All, all her psychoanalytical stuff is like like one or two like huge bookshelves. Yeah. And so there was discussion and also, you know, just talking about the reality that she did live with Paula Snelling, you know, and, and you know, the, the some conversations about Again, while we think we tend to think of this like monolithically um, conservative and retrogressive South, that there are certainly there have always been and still are today um, pockets of the South that are so much more progressive than other parts. And certainly that's one aspect of the mountains of the mountain South that I think 
isn't acknowledged as much is the kind of pockets of almost safe spaces in the mountains that have existed in ways that we don't often acknowledge. And I don't know the whole history of Clayton, but with her family involvement in Clayton, that seems kind of like a space and kind of her comments about whether she's just trying to be nice or whether it's actually true, the way that Clayton received her. Mm -hmm. Seems to kind of be that. Now, how progressive they were, I don't know exactly from that history yet. But you mentioned something there that I think was very interesting that actually somebody yesterday asked me about, or two days ago asked me about, people doing work on Lillian Smith as an artist. Because that was one of the main things she wanted to be known for. You know, she wrote about race, and she said at one point, maybe in the CBS um, news interview or whatever, that she feels like segregation and issues of race have stilted Southern artistic expression, which she mentioned. I don't want to talk about that. That's a whole new discussion. But she was very much aware and wanted to be an artist. So can you talk a little bit about that and how they kind of viewed her artistic craft? And there are people doing work on that. Tanya Long Bennett's new book, this edited collection of William Smith, is focused on her craft, but it still has to bring in the social justice aspects too. Sure, sure. They, well, in fact, that's what they, they felt such, such frustration at things like children talking because they said, you know, whether she's writing the right way is not the moderate way. And also, again, the people who read All of Strange Fruit just were really bowled over by what a compelling, engaging novel it was and how also Killers of the Dream, how it, you know, really brings you in and the vivid description, the vivid language, the gorgeous language. Um, of it. That's actually kind of what drove their emotional, annoy rather loud annoyance at some of her things, like the, the more Freudian things, because they're like, she can do this. She should just be doing this um, and not trying to like work in this very awkward Freudian framework. Well, that comes from Paula too, partly. <laughs> yeah. But so that was part of what drove their frustration um, with the more awkward Freudian things was seeing she is capable of this gorgeous compelling language over here so she should not be doing that but but then the issue is that Freudian psychoanalytical lens is what's informing those of the dream and that's sure. just the white womanhood right yeah so let's end with this you know we talked a lot about her work kind of how you come across her work her her place I would say within southern American literature so Ultimately, what do you want people to take away from Smith's work in life? Well, you know, so, so as somebody, I, I identify with having grown up in Georgia. I've lived lots of places and we moved around a lot when I was growing up. We moved to Georgia when I was seven and left when I was um, 16. So I identify with growing up in Georgia. Um, and there's, I'd like for her to have much more recognition as being a, this is what Georgia is about. You know, when you say I'm from Georgia, people will say, oh, Margaret Mitchell. Um, I would like them, there would be there to be more recognition of, you know, oh, Lillian Smith and and John Lewis and Outkast and R.E.M. And, you know, so much more. There's so much more to Georgia than I think the stereotypes and the old stories um, tell. And see, I'm new to Georgia. You know, this is only my second year here. I want him to say Lillian Smith, Frank Yerby, you know, Outkast, like you said, R.E.M., all that other stuff too, instead of just Margaret Mitchell or the Deep South or Stuck Mountain, right? Yeah. There's so much more here than just that. There's so much more. You live in Louisiana too. There's so much more in Louisiana. Oh, yeah. And digging into Louisiana's history, finding out 
about some of the things that I didn't know about, you know, recently. Well, Baton Rouge bus strikes. I mean. So all of that stuff. So there's a lot more we could talk about, but thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.